Hello and welcome to your active Spoon the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week our podcast is focusing on Viktor Orban's visit to Moscow amid the tension amongst the EU, the West in general and Russia. What was discussed, how was this visit perceived and what did Putin and Orban take away from their meeting? We are also talking about another meeting that took place the last week of January where EU ministers decided the general directive that the EU countries are expected to follow from the beginning of February when it comes to the EU digital COVID certificate. What was decided about the extra measures while traveling in the Eurozone and what you need to do if you're planning to travel. Viktor Orban visited Vladimir Putin in Moscow on Tuesday, while the West is observing the tension in Ukraine. To hear more on what is the meaning of this visit, I am joined by Euraktiv's Vlad Maximov. Welcome back to the podcast, Vlad. Hi, Evi. It's good to be back with you. So, Vlad, what was the intention of this visit by Orban and which were the topics put on the table by the two leaders? Well, I think we need to divide this visit into sort of two parts, you know, the optics and the substance. Um, just to give you a little bit of context, you know, uh, since Orban and Viktor came to power the second time around in 2010, this is their 12th visit together. So they've been meeting uh, every year, um, at least once a year, sometimes twice. Um, and uh, this visit is kind of special because it's the first one since COVID in person. So the fact that their meeting is not really surprising, the relations relations between Budapest and Moscow have been relatively good. What is sort of interesting from a historical perspective to remember here is that the um, the relationship between uh, Budapest and Moscow under the first Fidesz government from 98 to 2002 was actually not all that great. Fidesz was quite Um, anti-Russian and pro-Western. Now, we can see that that has changed quite substantially in the past couple of decades. So now, as I was saying, I think we this visit in particular, we need to really look at the sort of like separate the substance from the optics. Um, on the optics, the uh, talks lasted five hours or almost five hours. Um, the press conference was delayed like three hours. Um, so they were long talks and obviously in this context of simmering tensions between West and Russia, uh, that is a message in and of itself. Now, what was the purpose? I, I'm not going to venture as far as to say what the purpose for Putin was. I think there are way too many analysts out there on, on the Russian side. Um, but I, I'll try to, I'll try to offer some of the things that Orban was getting out of this visit. Um, Well, as we know, there was opposition to Orban going to Budapest, of course, from the Hungarian opposition on the one hand, but also voices in Brussels were saying, you know, well, it's not the best timing. Obviously, this isn't the best timing for a visit, especially because all heads are turned towards Ukraine, with the West being on standby in case Putin decides to invade. And now we have Orban visiting Putin in Moscow. What kind of message is he trying to convey here? Well, that is exactly the message. You know, the timing is the message. Um, and that was one of my points, actually, uh, that 
actually, precisely because of the tensions, this for Orban is the best moment to showcase, you know, that he has his own agenda and he's sticking to it. This uh, meeting was agreed in December. And for Orban, this is a way to say, well, you see what? Doesn't matter what the world events are. Doesn't matter what my allies are doing. I have my agenda and nothing will derail that. And that is, you know, of course, uh, you can take that for what it can mean. And then, of course, this is one thing. And the other thing is the coverage. <laughs> As you said, everyone is looking at Ukraine currently. And international media has given a lot of attention to this visit. Um, I mean, for God's sake, Orban appeared in New York Times' live coverage of the Ukrainian issue, you know? So, um, so of course, him going to Moscow at this moment makes it seem, uh, especially for the wider public, as if Hungary was negotiating uh, or at least playing a part in the current crisis, a, a, an important part, clearly not something that has to be true. Um, but certainly from the optics perspective, it's interesting. And we can actually get some uh, some clues from the way Orban was talking about. And that is interesting. And what were these clues then? In the first five minutes of, of the talks that, you know, were open to the press before uh, before they were left uh, tete a tete, uh, you know, he said, Orban said uh, that he considers his uh, trip to be a sort of a peace mission. Well, of course, you know, it's not a mission that anyone actually sent him on or <laughs> asked him to go on. But but this is the way he's presenting this, right? And then um, it's also uh, giving him a platform to push for sort of his own vision of relations with Russia, which he likes to present as the only sensible policy of uh, mutual respect and cooperation. Uh, he blasted uh, EU sanctions. And, you know, he's, he's really uh, presenting as if there was sort of a middle way between the West and Russia and Hungary is really the prime example of occupying this. Um, and he's, of course, you know, not only speaking, he's primarily not even speaking to his allies in the West uh, as much as uh, to audiences where he's coming from and in Visegrad. You know, um, many people tend to dismiss this, but there actually there are a lot of sympathizers uh, with Russia in Eastern Europe. Uh, Eastern and Central Europe, especially the older population. We've reported on this just a couple of days ago, but according to a news survey, 44% of Slovaks are actually blaming NATO for the current uh, escalation with Russia and not Moscow. So, you know, he's speaking to different audiences and primarily those at home. Well, this visit raises some questions regarding Hungary's stance when it comes to Ukraine. I mean, Orbán wanting to present himself as a mediator between the West and Russia is one thing, but where is Hungary standing when it comes to Ukraine? There are two parts, the optics and the substance. Um, and, you know, uh, the the substance is that there is a real conflict, whether it's resolvable or unresolvable between Hungary and Ukraine is a different question. Um, but certainly Budapest and Kyiv have been butting heads over ethnic minority rights in Ukraine for quite a while. Budapest has been using this to uh, block the, uh, as an excuse to block NATO Ukraine commissions. Uh, that conflict has not really been resolved. Now, Budapest will say that's because of, uh, of Ukrainian unwillingness. Ukrainians are saying that, you know, Budapest is just using this as a good excuse to keep uh, us in check and sort of have it over our heads. Um, so surely there is this sort of, uh, you know, um, less than uh, amicable relationship between Budapest and Kyiv. 
but this is really not the substance of this issue. And this is what our sources, you know, in NATO are telling us as well, that Hungary was uh, has been making a lot of noise about uh, the ethnic minority issue, but they have been told in no uncertain terms that they cannot do anything. <laughs> the tensions are just too high. The stakes are too high. And in my personal opinion as well, and this is understood in Budapest um, because, you know, every half a year or a year or however often the Ukrainian sanctions on Russia are renewed for the occupation of the Crimean Peninsula and its role in Donbass. Um, Hungary never vetoes these sanctions, even they, though they could. Um, and uh, that is sort of my reading of the situation here as well. If, you know, when push comes to shove, Budapest is quite unlikely to actually uh, to actually block these sanctions. Now, of course, this is just my analysis. In theory, they could. Uh, at least on the sanctions part, uh, on NATO, things get more complicated. And Vlad, moving now to the substance of the visit, what did they take away from this meeting? There were some some things that we already knew and others uh, that are that have kind of popped up as we went to, went along, even surprising Orban at one point, I think. So let's start with gas, because that also is actually still re- uh, related to your question about Ukraine. So Budapest last year signed uh, a long-term 15-year contract with Gazprom for 4.5 billion cubic meters of gas per year via Serbia and Austria. Uh, Now, that deal at the time last fall infuriated Ukraine, and Kiev was saying it was surprised and disappointed that the gas was actually going to bypass Ukraine, and they complained to the European Commission about this. So what Orban has been trying to do is actually now to increase this volume by 1 billion cubic meters a year uh, to 5.5 um, because of the current you know, gas prices crunch uh, that we Europe is experiencing. And so this is the real message of Moscow uh, in its uh, talks with Putin. If you're friends with us, you will get cheap gas. And in fact... Orbán almost sort of got what he wanted already. Putin was saying at the press conference, you know, we need to look at the gas supply. But, and this is the really scary thing. He was like, well, you know, our European partners are experiencing a problem with like decreasing volumes of gas storage. And they're likely to experience these problems next year. Hungary will not have these problems. We will come to an agreement on supply of additional gas. And so I think this phrasing of, well, Europeans are having problems, but Hungary won't, is the real message here for Putin. You were asking what Putin was trying to get out of this, out of this meeting. And of course, this is, there's an extra layer of the, uh, of, of the fact that this gas is going to be bypassing Ukraine. Um, and then there are other joint projects that they are having. Uh, well, the other one is nuclear, which is also very important. Uh, Russia is currently building the expansion of the Paksh uh, nuclear power plant in Hungary uh, for 12.5 billion euros. Uh, Ten of those are actually a Russian loan. Uh, so, you know, these business ties and um, energy policy ties are only deepening between Moscow and Budapest. And then right in the middle of the press conference, uh, Putin also announced that uh, the Russian rail will uh, finance uh, the new proposed uh, route bypassing Budapest for um, uh, heavy freight, so um, goods 
traffic on Hungarian rails by two billion dollars. Uh, and this was kind of completely underreported in the media, but Orban literally found out in the middle of the press conference. So really, Moscow is showering Budapest with money. <laughs> uh, whatever Orban seems to ask for, he gets. Well, the message is clear. Uh, Russia's friends will not have to deal with the energy and gas crisis, but the rest, sort of pointing towards the West here, uh, will have to. And speaking of the West, did this visit raise any eyebrows in the EU? It's hard to say how it's exactly was perceived, but it's also, it definitely raises eyebrows even for Orban's friends, you know? Uh, in his press conference after the talks with Putin, he was presenting himself as, you know, uh, the um, representative of Central Europe who are wary of the Cold War, don't want tensions, don't want, they want a diplomatic resolution to this crisis. But then, of course, reality is that his own partners in Visegrad, particularly Czechia and Poland, have very different stances in Moscow. Both are now supplying weapons to Ukraine and military equipment. Um, and it is quite telling that actually Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, one of the closest allies of Orban, was in Kiev uh, while uh, Orban was in Moscow. So, you know, his visit is not necessarily uh, in line with the, the political stances of his own partners. And how is it perceived at home? Hungary is in full election mode at this point. We are having general elections in April. Um, and so this visit is also an opportunity to go on the campaign trail in a way. Um, in his talks with Putin, Orban said, well, you know, I am running and I'm not planning on leaving. <laughs> and uh, uh, so this is really also, you know, a show of strength that, uh, you know, the Hungarian prime minister is in the big leagues. He is in the middle of uh, he's in the middle of the world politics and everyone everyone is interested in his opinion. You know, Orban was having phone calls with Stoltenberg. Um, Secretary General of, the, of NATO before his visit, and everyone was reporting on this. So I think I, I think sort of the question of well, how is it being perceived, is important abroad, but even perhaps more importantly, how is it being perceived back home? And it's become a campaign issue. You know, uh, the opposition is siding with the hysterical West, whereas uh, Fidesz is holding a calm line, calling for diplomacy. This is how. Orban is presenting his visit back home. Well, thank you very much, Vlad. It's always a pleasure having you to break down for us the meaning behind meetings like this one. Well, thank you for having me, Envy. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. And moving on another meeting, this time the EU ministers who met to revise and agree on the use of the EU digital COVID certificate and if there should be additional restrictions while traveling in the EU. To answer all our questions on COVID, I'm joined by Euractiv's health reporters, Gidre Pesetskite and Amelie Mersch. Welcome to the podcast. 
Hello, and thank you for, for having us here. Hi, Abby. It's nice to be here. Amid the rise of the COVID cases in Europe, EU ministers held a meeting the last week of January to talk about the additional restrictions imposed by a number of countries regarding travelling within the Eurozone. So, Amelie, what was discussed and what was concluded during the meeting? So, when, uh, when Omicron started spreading, uh, a few countries, that was uh, Italy, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, They started making it mandatory for, for people to traveling there to get tested, even though they were fully vaccinated. And that was kind of undermining the EU COVID certificate system. So what the EU ministers have discussed here in the last week of January was uh, to have a more united approach to these COVID travel restrictions. They ended up then agreeing on new uh, council recommendation which came into force here 1st of February, which was Tuesday this week. And it goes uh, back to recommending that people who are vaccinated have recovered from COVID, or if they have a, a negative COVID test, that they should be able to avoid quarantine and extra testing when they arrive at their destination. So if a country is classified dark red, then the member states can still require mandatory testing and a 10-day quarantine Uh, for people returning from these areas if they don't have a valid certificate. Um, and another thing they agreed uh, was to change the criteria for this traffic light map, which is made by the ECDC. So this new system will take into account both the infection rate in the countries, but also the amount of people who are vaccinated. The last thing in the recommendation is that they will also strengthen the emergency break which can then be used in case uh, new variants uh, of concern will appear in the future. And that means that new travel restrictions will be imposed with more coordination instead of just one country doing its thing. And Gita, from the 1st of February, all the EU countries are supposed to follow the same strategy when it comes to traveling. Does that mean that the only requirement to travel is a digital certificate? Actually, I was planning my travels as well, and I was very happy when I heard about it. But um, for everyone else who is planning to travel, I would say that you still have to check because this is what they agreed, you know, that from the 1st of February, all countries uh, should have the same strategy. But um, as we saw in the past, uh, countries can choose their own way as well. So this recommendation isn't legally binding, um, even though you, if you have a valid certificate, you should be able to travel in the EU without extra restrictions. But you should check because each member state might decide other than that, you know, in a different way. And do you know if the EU countries are willing to follow this new regulation? And what's the situation in most countries now? Well, as uh, Gierte implied, we will kind of have to see how it goes. I mean, the EU ministers have just agreed on it, so hopefully they'll uh, follow it. Um, but with these, um, of course, they can impose restrictions still if they if they want to. But with the stronger rules and the emergency break, um, they can impose new restrictions if there's also a new variant. Um, and the new rules then uh, make sure that if they choose to do that, the Council, Commission and the ECDC can review the situation and then propose more coordinated travels. Um, but as Gita says, do check before you, you go anywhere. So uh, the overall situation right now 
is that Omicron, of course, as we know, has spread to all EU country and all EU countries. Um, and overall, the cases are generally rising. But the good thing is that the hospitalizations because of COVID aren't rising as rapidly as we've seen before. Uh, and that's especially because of the vaccine rollout, uh, rollout which makes the, the cases less severe. So um, different countries have very different restrictions in place at the moment. In Germany, for example, they have this 2G plus rule in a lot of places. And that means that you have to show proof of a valid COVID certificate and a recent COVID test, or that you have a proof of a booster vaccination. Then there's a place like Austria, where vaccinations against COVID have been made mandatory uh, for everyone who's above 18. Um, and they can also find people if they didn't get the, the vaccination. So that means that in a lot of countries, a lot of things either have limited capacity or are completely closed. Um, but there are also a few countries that are easing their restrictions. Uh, the Netherlands has been in lockdown for a while and they're slowly opening up again. And also uh, the Danish government has just declared that COVID is no longer categorized as a disease critical to society, they say. And that means that they can lift all restrictions, including smaller things like uh, like masks. Like as an example, like I just know it because I was uh, choosing the flights to uh, Hungary and um, I had an option to fly either through Poland or through Italy, like to transfer the flight. And uh, so for Italy, at first there were like really, you know, strict rules. They were asking for tests for everyone who's coming and even for transfer flights. But uh, now, as far as I know, um, you can go there and uh, a certificate is enough. So it's just an example how in one country it changed just recently. And the vaccination campaigns are going on, as you mentioned, with countries like Austria making the vaccinations mandatory for everyone unless they belong to risk categories. However, Danish pediatricians want to follow the Norwegian example and not vaccinate the children aged 5 to 11 years old. Why is that, Kidre? They decided to vaccinate 5 to 11-year-olds um, earlier when um, the variant of concern that bothered us was Delta. And now the Norwegian recommendations are based on more recent data. They are evaluating the severity of Omicron. Uh, so um, Denmark is trying to change, well, not Denmark, but like Danish pediatricians are starting to talk with the government. Uh, they want the government to consider and so, uh, they are saying that Omicron isn't as severe. And at the same time, the vaccines haven't been adjusted to Omicron. Uh, so even though you have the job, there's a good chance that you might catch the infection. Um, and also children seem to be less ill from the virus. In Norway, they say that the vaccine is best for children with chronic diseases and kids who have contact with vulnerable people. Um, so basically, in both Denmark and Norway, the vaccine is voluntary. So no one is being forced. It's more about the fact that Danish government has recommended the vaccine to young children and what it, this decision is based on. And as I mentioned, it was more on Delta variant. Uh, so far, the Danish health authorities have said that they still recommend 5 to 11 years old to get vaccinated, but this might be changing uh, because they are investigating the effect of vaccines for children. Well, thank you, Gidre and Amelie. And our time is up for this week. 
I am Evie Kiori and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.